everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. We are sitting here today with Chef Rebecca Mason, and I am very excited to talk about all things sugar. How you <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Great. Welcome to uh, Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much. I've been losing my mind since, well, <laughs> let's say 2000. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody has been losing their mind since 2000, at least. So, you know, you have created such a huge following internationally with what you're doing. You have people that want to emulate you and you have people that drive from all over just to come and get sugar bites. So I want you to explain to everybody, you know, where it all started. You know, what was that? What was that initial moment where you said to yourself, you know, I really just want to go home every day covered in butter, sugar, and flour. <laughs> oh, man. So way back when uh, I was doing my undergrad at the University of Wyoming, um, fourth generation born in Wyoming, um, I was working at this coffee shop as a barista, I think before baristas became so scientific. Uh, and a guy came in, uh, John Guerin, and he bought the place and he was like the first real chef I'd ever met. And he rebuilt the place, built a kitchen. And every day he'd go, come bake with me, come bake with me. And being a young college student, who wants to go to work at 4 a.m., right? <laughs> um, and one morning I went and I kind of fell in love with it. Uh, I was by myself for a few hours. I had doughs in various stages and I was learning and I kind of had a natural knack for it. Um, so I just kept doing it. Um, and then, you know, I left Wyoming. I went to be a snowboard bum in Breckenridge and I kept baking. Uh, I would, uh, the guys Talk who- about, That's interesting, right? You're like Breckenridge, you're at elevation. And to be really yeah. frank, baking sucks at elevation everything sucks at elevation. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. No, not everything sucks at elevation, but baking is from a culinary standpoint for everybody out there. Baking is hard on, on sea level. Yeah. So, cause it's very scientific, but then you take it and you're going up. And so folks understand boiling point changes the higher you go. So 212 yeah. is not your boiling point when you go to right. elevation. So beans, dried beans don't cook leavening's different baking's different so i really that's crazy pasta doesn't cook normally it's hard it is it's um i think so there's two things here one i'm a natural born rule follower um if you wouldn't look at it you wouldn't think that to look at me sometimes but I like to follow the rules and I get real pissy when other people don't follow the rules. So baking kind of was natural. But second, I kind of learned, I, well, Laramie, Wyoming is 7,500 feet. Breckenridge is 9,600 feet. So I kind of learned to bake at altitude. So for me, I didn't realize there was a difference until I came to sea level. And then I went, oh shit, there's something not working here. Right. But a lot of it, like after that first couple of years in, in Laramie, the rest of it was kind of just self-taught. My mom bought me a KitchenAid mixer, which I still have, and she's still kicking. Uh, I bought the professional pastry chef by Bo Freiberg. <laughs> and I would just flip through the pages and go, oh, I'm going to make that. And then I try to make this chocolate mousse in a chocolate cage. And it would, I mean, it was okay. Right. But I really liked it. And I liked that I could get my snowboard tuned for two dozen chocolate chip cookies, right? Because they were tired of getting 12 packs of beer. So they were like, oh, cookies. Um, so I just kept doing it. 
And so finally, I, you know, I told my parents I'd stay in Breck for a year. And so at, at year six, I said, um, okay, I got to do something. I don't want to do accounting. Um, well, let me try this baking thing. Right. And so I started looking up culinary schools and, you know, at that time, the CCA in San Francisco and the CIA in Hyde Park were the only two schools that offered strictly pastry and baking, which by the way, was a big mistake. I should have done the whole thing. I should have learned to cook too. <laughs> um, and then I discovered the Ritz Escoffier and the Cordon Bleu in Paris. And I went, what the hell? Right. I was like, okay. So I filled out my little applications. I got some letters of recommendation and I sent it off. And one random day I would walked by the post office to get my mail on the way to work. And there was a letter for Mademoiselle Rebecca Madison. And I was like, what is this? And it's, you're coming to Paris. So off I went. <laughs> what And what year was that? Uh, so I got accepted in 1999. I moved to Paris in January of 2000. So yeah, um, I was 28 years French? old. Did you speak French? Uh, oh, no, not, I knew bonjour. That was it. <laughs> Uh, I went to a country where I knew no one. I didn't know the language. Uh, I had rented an apartment sight unseen. Um, you know, I just went, I, I just was like, okay, I'm gonna fly by the seat of my pants. Um, so the good thing was school, we had translators and I immediately signed up for a tutor because you had to have a working knowledge of French to get an internship. And the first month I was incredibly homesick. And then all of a sudden, one day I was like, I, I guess I'd gone to the farmer's market and I was like, I can get a baguette. I can get a roasted chicken. I could get some vegetables and I'm going to go home and eat this. And I was like, I'm going to stay here forever. <laughs> so, uh, so I did uh, school. I think the program was just under a year and you once you got, it was funny because superior, there's three trimesters, right? And the third trimester, we didn't have translators. And so I actually went over to London and um, sat at school for a day at the Cordon Bleu in London. Because um, I, you know, I wanted to learn things, right? But I needed to know what they were talking about. And it was absolutely the most boring day I'd ever had in my life. There was, they didn't, the British yeah. teachers didn't have that passion and that for lack of better terms je ne sais quoi about pastry like the guys teaching us their grandfathers had pastry shops right so I was like screw it and I came back and my teacher Monsieur Duchenne he says Rebecca I speak English and I went god damn it <laughs> so I stayed there graduated and then I did an internship uh, I was at the Hotel Bristol it's a five-star hotel. At the time, they were a two-star Michelin restaurant. Uh, Monsieur Marshall was my chef. And I was only supposed to stay three months. I stayed eight because I was learning so much. I was like this crazy sponge. So let me ask you a quick question before, before we keep going forward. How many students were at the school with you that were from the States? Actually, not that many. Um Cordon Bleu, it was oddly enough, 60% Japanese, uh, Central America. Um, let's see. In my class, I think, let's see, Travis, there was like five of us that were Americans. That's, I mean, and talk about, you know, we're not in Breckenridge anymore, Toto. No. <laughs> you're... you're <laughs> We're you're, in in the heart of, you're in the heart of Paris. You're surrounded by beautiful markets, you know, breads galore and pastry shops galore. Everywhere. Oh my God, I gained so much weight. But it's, <laughs> and it's one of those things where, you know, when you're surrounded with it and mm -hmm. it's such a integral part of Parisian life, right? I mean, just eating dinner at the brasserie on the corner was an experience, right? That's I mean, an education to itself. Yeah. I mean, everybody, almost everybody went to the markets to get their vegetables. You know, you're, you're the, the, I mean, shit, I tried horse meat, right? Like, 
I, and I, I am historically a very picky eater, uh, who's also allergic to shellfish. Right. Um, so when I went to France, I had the benefit of not knowing what I was eating because I couldn't translate the menu in the beginning. So I ate everything that was put in front of me. And it was to this day, I've yet to have asparagus that good, you know, like it's, there's so many things that I discovered that I enjoy eating and, and enjoy being around that it was like, I don't know, my mind, my little 28 year, 28 year old mind was blown. What was, so like, and where were you living? Where was that like, <laughs> apartment? I lived on Rue de la Roquette, just off the Bastille. Oh, nice. That's, yes. That was a win. Yes, which unfortunately, so now if you've been to Paris lately, the Alain Ducasse chocolate shop is like a block away from where I used to live. It wasn't there when I was there, thank God. <laughs> no. Right? I wouldn't have fit on the plane home. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, it was a very lively neighborhood. We had the market at Richard Lenoir, which is arguably one of the best markets in Paris every I think it was Thursday and Sunday or Wednesday and Sunday um access you know I could jump on a subway go anywhere um uh, you know it's a it's a it's a short 50 minute to an hour walk to the Hotel Bristol which I discovered when the um Metro went on strike <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, it was just, it was just, just this crazy adventure, you know? And then I befriended one of the sous chefs at the hotel. And on his days off, he would take me around to other places where I would meet other chefs and try, you know, I got in the kitchen at the Creon, the George Sank, the, um, shit, what's the one? Anyways, the one on Champs-Élysées, you know, I, I was in these kitchens meeting these people and trying their pastries through the back doors because of relationships so i got a i got more education in eight months at my internship than i did in school i mean yes school taught me the basics and school was a building block to get me to that internship but i'm also a rule follower who's an overachiever and i wasn't going to be happy standing there for three months, making the petty fours for lunch and dinner, and then going on my way. I wanted more. And so I basically had to make it happen. One, because of language barriers. I'd sit there and listen to everybody. I had 12 accents to learn. <laughs> you can never try, you can never understand anyone from Marseille. Um, but I just, remember like every day we'd go out for, we'd go to lunch, right? 11 and 11.30, we'd come back. The sous chef would do A, B and C to get ready for service. So I sat there and just watched him for a week, right? And one day I came back from lunch five minutes early and I did A, B and C. And then I went back to my little petty fours. You'd have thought the world ended. So the sous chef stood there scratching his head. He goes, who did this? He thought he was in trouble with chef. And I said, I did it. And he goes, you did it. How do you know how to do it? And I go, I watched you for a week. So then the executive sous chef, Fabrice, who is a peach of a man, but terrifying in the kitchen. Same thing. How'd you know how to do it? And and why did you do it? And I said, because I want to learn more. Then Monsieur Marshall came over, executive chef. I thought, oh shit, now I'm in trouble. And they all just kind of hunted me and walked away. I I wasn't the normal stagiaire, right? And so the next day we come back to work and Guillaume, who's the 16 year old apprentice, who's higher on the hierarchy than me, is now making the petty fours for lunch and dinner. And I'm working service with the sous chef. And it just kept going. And I was like, gimme, gimme. I, you know, and they looked at me one day and they said, what, what, who are you? And I said, you are getting 40 hours a week free labor. I'm getting priceless in education. So I'm going to take it for everything I can. And, you know, to this day, Monsieur Marshall's like, ah, oh, here comes the American. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, we're, I'm still good friends with a handful of the guys. And, and we, you know, now I, I taught my, this last trip to Paris. I taught Monsieur Marshall how to make cinnamon rolls. I mean, you know, so it comes full circle. I mean, it's, and I think that's, that's a really important part of 
that education process is the go-getter, right? Yeah. Like getting aspects, like nothing is spoon-fed to you. You're given the basics and that's, school is key, right? There's that foundational work that you cannot live without, right? You need the legs to stand on to get in the door. Once you get in the door, it's where you take that foundational work. For sure, for sure. Right? I mean, and it's you can always stand in the corner and peel spuds and carrots and <laughs> you know uh, sip flour for them to make everything right, or you can take notes on what they're doing next to you. And yeah, I mean, I have friends who one of my girlfriends did her stage at Le Grand before. I mean, arguably one of the greatest restaurants, right? She she stood in the basement for three months and picked petit pois. I was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta show them you want it, right? And I mean, she was happy with that. But me, I wasn't happy making petty fours. I wanted to make the souffle, and I finally did, right? But yeah, I mean, I had this notion that when I finished school, I was gonna go back to Breckenridge and open a bakery. I knew it all, right? School taught me everything I needed to know. I was gonna go do that. And two months into that internship, I was like, I don't know shit. And so I just kept soaking it up. And towards the end there, they got their second Michelin star. And Monsieur Freshon, who's the chef of the Bristol, he got invited to do this dinner in New York uh, for the French consulate. And they said, well, you're going home. Why don't you just go with us and help us? And I was like, okay. Do, 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 do. Um, we ate at Boulud at Danielle. We ate at Jean-Georges. We worked in Payard's kitchen. And I had zero clue who these men were I had no idea right but everywhere we went they're like Rebecca needs a job and I was like no man I'm gonna go open this bakery (laughs) 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 I don't need a job I got one um and I don't know so I went and did a a stage at Cafe Balloon for DB Bistro it hadn't opened yet so it was Jean-Francois Burrell and uh I'm sorry the pastry chef name escapes me christina something anyways all i know is i got back to colorado and they called me and francois payard called me and they're like you want a job and i was like okay eeny meeny miny mo and i picked db and off i went again i moved to a city at least i spoke the language but i didn't know a soul and it's a big city right and so uh what was that may of 2000 no june of 2001 i moved to new york city and started working at DB Bistro. So that was another moment. <laughs> um, so I did that for about a year and then I got the promotion up to Danielle and I was there for a year. Um, and that was a real eye opener because at the Bristol, you know, we served 55 people at lunch and 55 at dinner. At Danielle, it was 355. So it was an insane transition. And it was, in, it was crazy to see, this is where I learned about how to stabilize things, how to make things last, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas at the Bristol, everything was a la minute, right? So there was a whole new education. Talk um, about it. I mean, that's like a massive difference. And I think, you know, for, for folks out there who aren't in the industry, who want to understand when you're in France, I mean, you made everything per service each day. Mm-hmm. There yeah. was no, no holdovers. No, no holdovers. And uh, from, and I'm talking from AM to PM, sir, from lunch to dinner service, there's no holdovers. It's new because when you're going over there, it's a whole new world, right? right. You come yeah. to the States and there's a different dynamic. Uh, you're working in the States, there's a different dynamic of amounts where you have to produce large quantities at yeah. super high quality and it's, is it stable? Is it going to last? Uh, like you said, stabilization of jams, of pastries. Is it going to stay crisp? Is it going to get soggy? All those pieces are big. I mean, that's a big, big transition change. Yeah. It's it's like, let's take the whole half-baked chocolate cake thing. In France, the miqui, right? Um, so at the Bristol, we had one. We would make the batter. And in the, you know, before each service, we'd pipe it in the mold. And when it was ordered, we'd bake it. It took eight minutes, start to finish, right? 
at Danielle, it was like, okay, we make the batter, we kind of half bake it, we freeze it, we keep it, you know, then we kind of steam it and then we finish baking it and then it goes on the plate, right? They both produce a delicious item. They're just so different in how they're made, right? So someone worked really hard to figure out how can I, at Danielle's, I think it might've been Thomas Haas. I think that's how long that dessert's been there. But uh, he worked really hard to make sure that that half-baked chocolate cake you got tastes as fresh and delicious as that one that was baked that moment, that very moment. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy, insane thing. And it's something that's carried over for me too. Um, like, when I started fluff, I started in a commissary, right? So I had an eight foot table, I had a rack in a fridge and a rack in a freezer. And I had to learn how to produce everything all the time, every day, so that I knew it was like fresh and delicious, right? So you learn how like I can half bake this and then this and do that and twist and then fly over here that you know so it's it was definitely an eye-opener and it was a really good education on seeing how those things transition it's amazing to to think that we've <clears throat> we've come so far culinarily to be able to do these things oh for sure yeah i mean you know you know think i think about those guys in the the boulangeries of paris down in the basement like God, what time do you get there to make all that stuff? Because they make a lot. Oh, I mean, you think of Poilane, right? Let's use that as an example. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful basement. Such a beautiful bakery, the basement, working down there, making everything every day. And, you know, for folks that don't know, the tartine next door, the, the shop that just serves the day-old bread that they slice and confit, duck confits, open-faced sandwiches. But I think that that... That technology or the understanding of progression of food, how to be able to produce top quality, large quantity without cutting corners is an art form unto itself. Yeah, it's especially in this day and age. I mean, God, you know, what a year ago is, I mean, I'm okay. We make a lot of cookies. I, I, we use regular commercial eggs, right? One, because farmer's eggs are inconsistent. I need to know that every time I crack an egg, it's 50 grams. Two, you can't taste the difference. But let's say a year ago, I was paying $28 a case for eggs. January, it was $99 a case for eggs. Now I'm averaging 65 to $70 a case of eggs, right? Like that's just, bananas because eggs have always been the cheap one right i'm glad i'm not like a breakfast place it's the same thing with butter when i first started i was like oh i'm gonna use pelugra because it's the best right let me tell you pelugra doesn't make a difference in a chocolate chip cookie it doesn't right when when i've learned in the 12 years of owning a business when do i get to spend money on something nice and when do i use the common everyday item, right? So I have my diehards. I will always use Valrona cocoa powder right there. <laughs> I will, uh, you know, I will, that's, that will never change. I will always use King Arthur flour. I will always use Imperial sugar. Do I have a workhorse chocolate that I use for brownies and buttercreams? Yes. When I make something that's specifically chocolate, do I go out and buy the higher end chocolate? Yes. But it took me a really long time to figure those things out. I thought when I started, I would only use high-end stuff. Shit's expensive. You know, you've got to, you, you got to think, you know, and now I'm really cheap, right? Like I use the parchment paper two or three times because, right, it's, it's still good, <laughs> right? So you just have to, it's, yeah. I think having the foundation of seeing something super high-end Costs were not a concern. I don't think in the eight months I was at the Bristol, we ever did inventory. To going to Danielle, I know, you're, I, it's insane, never do inventory. Then going to Danielle, where yes, we did inventory, you know, I think they might've done it weekly and, you know, costs were super important. And, 
you know, the product had to be delicious and good, but we also needed to make sure that we could afford it. So I think having that range of education was super important. I mean, it's, it's incredible to me that just to, that baking scares me. I'll say it. 100% baking scares me. You don't me. follow rules, do you? <laughs> Baking's a science. Yes. Let's be really transparent here. Baking is a science. And like you said, it's rules, but also the ingredients are create a scientific reaction to give you the final end means product, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're building a dish or composing a dish, you have techniques, right? To get to the final end means to compose the dish. Yes, the ingredients are there. There will be a reaction when you sear meat, right? A Maillard reaction. There is, you know, so the way you season things, the way you blanch vegetables, all these different steps along the way, but you can adjust flavor in a dish, in a savory dish along the way with acid, herbs, right? Different forms of salt, whether it be, <clears throat> right? It could be a caper. Yeah. It could be, you know, a, a salted anchovy. It could be a fish sauce. It could be a million different things. Whereas if you, you cannot adjust those things in baking. Um, because once it's baked, it's done. Once it's baked, it's done. Right. So you kind of have to go through the whole process to get to the end to go, shit, this needs more salt. Right. Or, oh shit. I, you know, I used, I didn't measure clearly. Oh right? yeah. That's a good one. Oh, it scales. People scales. use your scales scaling like we are yeah. still an archaic country we use cups and tablespoons we need to we yeah. need to grow up and and use a yeah. metric system because it's very specific it is it's so good it's so good um yeah yes and no uh so at this point in time in the game i let's say i'm trying to make a new cookie right okay so you have your base you know you're gonna need butter sugar brown sugar eggs flour blah 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 baking soda this or that i know my taste is that i like things to be a tad bit saltier than the than the average home cook right salt is magical salt balances things salt brings things out all those kind of things right same with acidity um and i think that's just I learned those things from eating delicious food, right? Um, and knowing that, shit, this needs something to brighten it. So I think for me, I already kind of, it's, it, it's God, what have I been baking since the early 90s? So I can already know I'm going to probably reduce the sugar. I'm probably going to add some salt and I might add something acidic, right? So, but you, it takes a long time to get there, right? It's so, it's, it's yeah but yeah then you can't like screw with like the chemical parts of it right you know you have you to have tinker you can't tinker with a cake recipe <laughs> sorry <laughs> if you but don't you have eventually. eventually you can eventually you can but yeah. I, you know i always say recipes are guidelines unless you're baking this is true and you know when i and and i have slowly taught myself how to cook I'm not very good, but I know a handful of things. I know enough to be dangerous, right? Because we do the Saturday morning things where we make savory things, right? And if you put a recipe in front of me, I can follow it. And I'll usually follow it the first few times. But then I get comfortable and I'm like, ooh, I'm going to add some sherry vinegar here. I'm going to do this or I'm going to go there. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's fun, right? But yes, baking, yes, you can't. I, I always say when I'm making a new recipe, I will make the recipe as written one time. And then I will sit there and eat it and analyze the shit out of it and overthink it. And then I will go back and change it. That's, yeah, that's usually my standard practice. You'd be really proud of this mushroom mix I make for this quiche. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of it. <laughs> So you're now cooking in New York. What's next? What's that next? What, what what was that leap next? So let's see, what did I do? I went to take a sous chef position. 
I think the guy's name was Dan Silverman. It's the Lieber House. Deborah Snyder was the pastry chef. And while I was there, this guy named Gary Robbins called me and said, do you want to be my pastry chef? And I went, sure, why not? Right? I know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, and so I went and op I was the opening pastry chef for this place called the Biltmore Room. Um, Gary was special. Uh, I didn't last very long. It is the one, I, I six months. I lasted six months. It's the one job I walked out of. But before I walked out, I made sure the station was set for three days. So I, you know, they, they, they had a, they had a, they had a cushion. Uh, and I went upstairs and I told the GM I wasn't coming back. Um, Jerry had, um, Gary, Gary uh, had said some bad habits that made him not a nice chef. And uh, as I was leaving, a guy named Jimmy Bradley walked into that restaurant. Um, Jimmy Bradley owned the Red Cat and the Harrison. Uh, he was a fixture in, he's still, I mean, he's still, he's Jimmy Bradley, right? Jimmy. Uh, so he's amazing. I know, I love Jimmy Bradley. Uh, so Jimmy asked the GM who the pastry chef was and, and Ashley said, well, she's available, here's her number. <laughs> And I ended up interviewing and taking the job at the Red Cat for a couple of years. And hands down, my favorite restaurant job I ever had. Uh, some great people came out of Jimmy's world. You know, you had Harold Dieterl, Jimmy, Joey Campanero, Lawrence Edelman. I mean, just such a great environment. Jimmy taught me that I can't put caramel on everything on a menu, but he let me go. He just said, okay, stop putting caramel in everything, but go make your dessert menu. And it was amazing. It was a great time. And so from there, I took a job. I opened BLT Prime with Laurent Turandel. Um, Worked with Mark Forgione. He was a CDC. Um, that was, um, that was an adventure. <laughs> we, I had, that was like the best kitchen I ever had. I had the upstairs kitchen. I had my own burners. I had a dish pit. I'd been walking. I'd granite. I mean, that was a pastry chef's haven. Um, and then, you know, some personal stuff happened in my life and it was time for me to leave New York and I left New York. Um, I took some time off to kind of regroup. I was broke. I hadn't owned a car in eight years. Um, and I just started interviewing for jobs kind of anywhere. I was looking for was looking for that unicorn kitchen, that positive environment, like team team uh what's the word i'm looking for like everybody was a team right um you know i think i i i came down to houston and i interviewed with uh, ryan para he has agricole hospitality and he was the chef at this little boutique hotel and i walked in the kitchen and the sous chef was this girl tracy and immediately we bonded like we are best friends to this day and i liked ryan's food I liked the environment. Uh, the bonus was my mom and dad live here. But I went to, this is a good story. I went to, I had an interview at Morimoto in Philadelphia. And so I went there and, you know, you, tastings, you make what you want. But they're like, here, we need you to make this one dessert. And it was a wasabi tiramisu. And uh, yeah, that was good. But the whole time I was standing there, I was like, this place smells like fish. Cats are going to follow me home. Like everything smells like fish. And so I got back to the hotel and there was an email from Ryan and he'd offered me the job and blah, blah, blah. And at the end he goes, P.S. Morimoto smells bad. <laughs> and so I went, that's it. I'm going to Houston. So once again, I knew two people here. I knew my mom and dad, um, but I moved somewhere where, you know, I didn't really know anybody and so I took the job at the Alden and I was there for a few, a couple of years, uh, worked for Chris Shepard at Catalan for a couple of years. And then I ran the pastry department at this Whole Foods on steroids grocery store called Central Market. Um, and that was the perfect education to opening my own business because they had given me this department. I had, I don't know, eight employees. They did $80,000 a week in sales and pastry. I had to do payroll, food costs, like the whole shit and shebang, right? 
So I worked there for about a year and a half and I went, you know what? It's I'm good. I'm ready. And so <laughs> let's, let's try this. Right. <laughs> so I got, um, so back Ryan Para once again, enters my life, him and Morgan were opening this little, uh, market called revival market. And they said, Hey, we have this pastry case. Do you want to fill it? And I went, okay. So I had to find a commissary. So I found this commissary. I bought like 10 sheet pans. I grabbed that mixer, you know, the one that my mom bought me when I was in Breckenridge and I headed to the commissary and I just started making stuff. And I didn't have any money saved. Uh, every once in a while, I'd go to Ryan and be like, hey, can you pay me? I need to buy some more butter. <laughs> it was just this little revolving thing. And so that was in 2011. And then I kind of got, oh, well, yeah. So then that started. And six weeks later, I left for Top Chef. <laughs> Um, and so I got one of my girlfriends who was in culinary school, full-time engineer. I'm like, yo, can you, can you run fluff for like the next 30 days? And of course, you know, and, and just for folks out there who don't realize you can't tell anybody you're going on top chef. No, you can't. You can't say a word. You sign I, documents. I did. I got permission to tell Ryan. <laughs> yeah. You're allowed to tell your, I think you're allowed to tell your employer. Yeah. So, uh you know, at that point we were just real simple. We were doing like player cakes, cupcakes, cookies. So we stocked a freezer. We made cookie dough till we were blue in the face. So I pretty much, so we, we set Kelsey up for success, but yeah, I was gone for 30 days. And so in August of that year, so March is when revival opened in August of that year is when top chef, it was top chef just desserts aired. And that couldn't have been a better vehicle for launching my business. That was it. That was, that's the bump I needed to go. And so from there, I just started picking up more wholesale accounts. I started having to hire people, you know, we were working, well, we could only work four days a week at the commissary. So we were working like four, 12 hour days a week. Um, and it's, I guess sometime in 2014, I got a wild hair up my ass to open a storefront. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, I started that journey. Um, thankfully my parents helped me. They were my investors. So I didn't have to get like outside people. So I've always been a sole proprietor, which is, uh, I, that makes me really proud to say, right. Cause I paid off my parents. I run my own business. I don't answer to anyone but me. Um, and I just, you know, looking at back, you know, you watch all your friends like open restaurants and they have all these investors and sometimes it's really great. And sometimes it's really bad. I'm so glad I never had to go through that. Um, but it was hard. I mean, we opened the first brick and mortar in 2015. And I just remember like every month going, Hey, I bought us another month. I paid the rent. <laughs> right like there were some there were some moments where I thought shit this isn't gonna work um I had these grandiose ideas so I call it's called fluff bake bar and the original thought of it was I kind of wanted to do like this bakery slash dessert bar right so you come in in the day you get your cookies and your brownies and your coffee but at night we had plated desserts and beer and wine and it was so that I could play both my strengths, right? Because I was a restaurant pastry chef for so long. And now I'm trying, now I'm a bakery owner who tries to figure out how to put everything she put on a plate in a cookie, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But uh, it was, it, it it lasted about a year where we said, yeah, this plated dessert thing isn't going to work. And it it made me sad, but at the same time, like, people were still coming in at eight, nine o'clock and buying cookies. So it was okay. Um, let's see. It probably wasn't until about year three, I started feeling comfortable and that's when the ceiling fell. Literally. Uh, we, we were in a mixed use building and the third floor tenant busted a pipe and it rained in my bakery for three hours. This was a month 
after Harvey. I survived Harvey only to get flooded by some jackass trying to unhook his washer machine. So we were quote unquote closed for three months. We could still operate. The kitchen was fine. We sealed it off. We still did our wholesale. You could call us and st- you know place an order and we would make things. We'd still kind of do the Saturday morning bake sales. Um, and that was, uh, what was that? Late October. In December, Eater Houston put me on the saddest closures of 2018 list. And that caused a ruckus because they said, I, you know, I was on the list with like, Oxheart. Oxheart was never coming back. I wasn't closed. I was still selling shit. So let's hang on one second. Yeah. What was the top chef just <laughs> experience like from a business standpoint? Like I know like I know what Top Chef Masters was like. I know what it's like being a judge on Top Chef. I have yeah. no, I can't imagine Top Chef just desserts. I mean, you're making pastries in limited amounts of time, which is kind of crazy to even think about that. Pastry is very, it's an elongated process. It's not as, you know, quick as searing a piece of fish. I, I think there's definitely, I'm interested to hear what that was like. And I'm sure the world wants to know, like, what was that like, you know, being put under massive time constraints? Mm-hmm to be able to do, I mean, baking is hard. It's not, it's not a game. Oh, but let's also throw in between episodes one and two, I broke my arm. (laughs) How the hell did you do that? I can say it now, uh, jumping on a trampoline for photo shoots. And I went to get off the trampoline and the last step was an apple box, not nailed to the floor. And I had already broken my arm before from snowboarding. So I knew the moment I hit. I think I screamed out. Can I say? I think I screamed fuck really loud. And then, okay. Then this crowd of people descended upon me and I had no idea who any of them were. So then I went into a full panic attack. <laughs> like it was insane. And yeah. So yeah, I broke my arm. Uh, luckily it was my left arm. Um, You know, it was, it was a really interesting experience. Um, I'm sure, you know, from working in restaurants, pastry chefs are a rare, like we're a different breed, right? Um, We're pretty anal. Uh, I can't imagine putting, how many of you were there? 14 to start. 14 complete OCD folks in one place at one time. I mean. Some more than others. I I found this I found this really odd. So you know, you go through this whole vetting process to get on the show and you end up talking to a psychiatrist and you take all these tests <laughs> to make sure that you're not a, a psychopath, right? And the guy looked at me and he said he said two things. He says, "One, you test perfectly for reality TV." And I go, "What does that mean?" And two, he goes, "Out of everyone you tested, you're the most normal." And I went, "Oh shit." <laughs> <laughs> oh boy it's gonna get interesting we're in trouble but you know there were some i mean we had a guy who was the youngest pastry champion in the in i think in the u.s and that's like those french like you have to make entremets and show pieces and bonbons and uh we had a girl i think she worked for uh sherry at spago for years and then was like at the beverly hills hilton um you know we had a guy from vegas like we had these people and they were high-end pastry chefs in restaurants right so i kind of had a one-up for a hot minute because i was a pastry chef in a restaurant and now i am a bakery owner who mass produces things delicious things right so when the challenge was make a hundred of something i was like hey get the hell out of here i got this right and everybody else is like losing their shit um it was interesting. It was uh our like our quick fire times were a little longer. Uh you you became intimate with the blast freezer, the blast chiller. Um we actually had the benefit the first season they didn't let them have recipes, which was a serious mistake. So if you watch the first season, you see that they're making this like one guy wins the whole season and he literally makes cremeau the whole season because it's the one recipe he remembers, right? Um, so for us, they 
FedEx is a black book. We had 24 hours to fill it up and then we had to give it back and it never left the kitchen. So we had recipes. Um, if you're like me, you just printed out every recipe you had on your computer and glued it into the black book. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. I'm sure people are like handwriting shit in there. I know. Who's that fool? Um, you know, we had, there were some interesting challenges. There were some, what the fuck challenges. The one I went home on was a big one. Uh, we had, uh, we had ad rock from the Beastie Boys was our judge. And I've only had a crush on him since I was 13 years old. Uh, like, you know, he walks out and I go, holy shit. And everybody looks at me and I go, that's ad rock. And they're like, no. And then Gail's like ad rock. And then they go, oh my God. But I was also the oldest one there. I think, I think I was 38, uh, but we had the Beastie Boys pantry. So we had to pick items. So I picked, it was all the foods listed in uh, Beastie Boys songs. So I picked a ham and 40 ounce of beer and then I got sabotaged with falafel and that was it. Like, you know, you get that moment where you're like, I was like, I have to have a falafel. I have to make something with a falafel. I can't make, I, I could have made something with the flavors of falafel, but that wasn't in my head. So I sucked myself out and just completely screwed myself. And that's, you know, Ad Rock told me my dessert was nasty and I cried. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't because I was going home. It was because Ad Rock told me my dessert was nasty. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was, but it was nasty. It was a falafel panna cotta. Don't ever try it. <laughs> I know. I should have just stuck with the fried chickpeas. And then I made like a cumin ham pecan brittle and I made a 40 ounce ice cream. I should have just thrown away the panna cotta because it was bad, but I just, I don't know. You know, I just, you, in my in my head, all I keep thinking about is like a is like a fucking donut. It's like I know. A, I could, a you ham know, that donut. Was ham I and could, falafel donut with beer. Beer. I had, I had this Zeppeli recipe that I created for the Red Cat, and it has risotto in it. And I could have taken that out and put chickpeas in it. To this day, we're talking 2011. To this day, I still say should have put chickpeas in the donut <laughs> you know at the same time I, I was tired I was at my wits end I wasn't eating or sleeping very well because it's just a stressful it's a stressful oh, yeah. environment and, and I don't think people realize like you have no phone no phone no, book, no tv no radio music you nothing you're nothing. Yeah, you have to talk to these people who you're competing against, some of which don't like you. Like there was one guy who just thought all I made was cupcakes. And I was like, well, dude, you know, and, and they do that full disclosure thing at the beginning of every episode. So like Johnny Uzzini was a judge. And at the very episode, he's like, I know two people here. I know Chris because I judged a contest and Rebecca used to work for me. So they all looked at me and I went, yep, I don't just make cupcakes. Right. So I felt like a little underdog for a hot minute, but then, yeah, but at least I got sent home for lawful. Right. Yeah. You didn't get sent home for, for chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the roof caves in, you're back yeah. at it. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, the, the business is not easy. Let's be, let's be, and, and you're fortunate enough where you had that experience where you were given that education, not only in the restaurants, but then mm -hmm. in, in large quantity and catering and doing large numbers, but also being at Central Market, you were given an education to be able, that sets you up for success to open your own brick and mortar. A lot of people never get that education. And I mean, that's that's a that's a huge puzzle piece to being a successful business owner. I think that's 90% of the reason I took that job was to learn like the the office side of it, right? The food costs, the labor costs, you know, calling around, finding the best price on something, forecasting. I mean, Jesus, we made 4,500 pies in three days at Thanksgiving, right? So just learning how to navigate the production of 4,500 pies was huge and how I mean, many flavors of pie put that into context too yeah maybe i think maybe 10 10 to 12 
right? And some can be made ahead of time and some have to be made that moment. Like, it, you know, it was just, it was insane. All along, you know, and you only have one one rotating rack oven. <laughs> so you got to figure out how to jack everybody else's rotating rack ovens. Um, so yeah, I think for me, that was hugely important. Also having a little background in degree in, in accounting and then my mom's a bookkeeper, right? So I kind of had, really important tools at my side. And I wasn't like, yeah, I walked, I just woke up, you know, basically woke up one morning and said, okay, I'm gonna go find this commissary. Like I didn't go out and buy a bunch of shit. I just took what I had and just, so I grew organically for sure, right? Sometimes I had to knock on doors to get people to pay bills, but I was still reconciling my own bank statements and doing my own purchasing and doing my own payroll, like for a longest time, I didn't hire a payroll company until a year and a half ago, <laughs> you know? So it was, you know, it, it was definitely some craziness. Um, but then there was learning how like lease negotiations and brokers and, and landlords. And that was a whole new thing that I learned in 2015 and then repeated the process in in 20, 2019, 2020 when I moved. Um, and so there's, it's not just about baking, right? Like I am HR, I am, you know, I'm, I'm the office, <laughs> I'm all these things. So it's, yeah, it's some days I wish it was just baking. <laughs> I think that's, and, and, you know, that's actually a really good point because I think a lot of folks, you know, as a young cook, I looked up to my sous chef and I want his job. I'm gunning for his sure. role because he's going to move up or he's going to move out and I want to be right there. As you move up and as you do more in that world, you do less cooking. Yeah. And I think that that is something that if you ever see a chef that is super stoked. You ever notice he's either on the line or he's in the dish pit? He's good. Oh, I love the dish pit. Don't because tell me. Because it's those moments. It's Don't those tell my employees, but I love washing dishes. Because it's that moment of just focus and clarity. You're cooking. You're just cooking. Yeah. You're just cooking and you're really enjoying that moment where you don't have to deal with numbers, drama, uh, who didn't show up, what's broken, all these other parts that... I think that people think that they aren't there because someone else deals with them while they're just cooking. And that some person is the boss. Yeah. I know how to change the hinge on a commercial door. Hello. I mean, <laughs> YouTube, <laughs> you know, it's there's base, you know, how to fix your HVAC unit, how to change filters, how to change a, a belt on your, on your hood, you know, all those parts, you know, that rush to the top, is doesn't always lead to as much freedom as everyone thinks it gives them. There's less cooking involved. Right. And, um, it, it mean, it's still, you know, you get there and you enjoy it, but there's a parts of me that I can say personally that I just miss the cooking. Well, and I, for me, I miss the learning, right? Cause as a pastry cook, I'm always learning something new as a pastry sous chef, I was always learning something new, right? So I can try to create something new, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm learning something new. So that's why I'm thankful for like continuing education, right? You got Valrona has a school, Cal Calibo or Cocoa Berry, um, Melissa Koppel in Vegas has a school and it's not uncommon for me. I try to do it once a year. I'll disappear for four or five days because I'm going to go learn something new. And I get so damn excited. That's right? an amazing experience. And I think the more we look at that as we get older, out, the more we look at um, seeing those things, the opportunity to travel, to yeah. learn things. And I think travel is a big part of our growth as upper management as chefs we travel to eat we travel to see things and those are those learning moments yeah. um 
that we ask, hey, can I come hang out in your kitchen and see how you did that? Because that's a really cool technique I've never seen before. Before I opened Fluff the first time, when I was going to do plated desserts and bakery, I called Jen Yi when she was at Lafayette because that's what she was doing. She had plated desserts in the restaurant and she had a little pastry shop. And I spent two weeks in Jen's kitchen seeing how she, you know, cross utilized product how she did scheduling how she made sure you know like that that's it's free education and most of your chef friends don't mind saying if you say hey can i come hang out with you for a week and work right like that's like the greatest thing you can do and i also really like like when we are collaborating for like bake sales and stuff like when when pre-covid every weekend every saturday we had a different chef so every Saturday, Friday and Saturday, my staff was exposed to a different chef and they could like literally be debating shrimp for something. Right. But at the same time, like making couch potato cookies, like I love being able to provide not only the opportunity for myself, but the opportunity for my staff to get it because scooping cookies gets boring. Right. But if you know on Friday that Chef Chris is coming in and he's making arancini, oh my God, I'm going to learn how to make an arancini. I'm so excited, right? Like it's, I don't know. I try to do the little things like that, not only for myself, for my own brain, but to entertain and educate my staff. I think it's really important. It makes for fun. It makes fun for everybody. You I learn, know. they learn, and, it, and it's a bolstering system for everybody. It brings, you know, you know, all tides raise all ships, right? Brings mm-hmm. everything up. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, and then it also kind of, it's, it's a, you know, Houston is a huge city, but the culinary community is pretty small. So, you know, I am always of the belief that there's enough room for everybody. I mean, one of my closest, nearest and dearest, he owns Michael's Cookie Jar. Uh, his snickered I want my snickerdoodle to be what his snickerdoodle is when he grows up, right? But like just being able to call and say, hey, I'm having trouble with this or saying, let's collaborate on something or calling the guy who makes ice cream. Like it's it's so important to not be the one asshole in the group, right? It's so important to be a part of your community. And that way, if you need an employee or if you have an employee who wants to move on, like all you gotta do is pick up the phone and call Bob over at, you know, wherever, like there's, there's a handful of things that have always been really important to me and education, you know, exposing my staff to things they might not see and being a part of community. And I think those things help you maintain your existence in the culinary world right yeah is that that right yeah Yeah. (laughs) i mean it's like look we're we're we have to pass the education on right Mm -hmm. there's always going to be a next generation um you know figure out who i'm going to leave the bakery to when in my will (laughs) wow i didn't expect that so there you have it folks Uh, right now it's going towards jared because he said he'd put up a memorial to me in the bakery so (laughs) oh my god you are a piece of work unreal unbelievable unbelievable Uh, but also i want to move to france and 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 sell cookies by the seashore (laughs) that sounds like fun too right cookies and ice cream in the south of france oh yeah and oysters and well, no, I can't have those, but you can't, but somebody can go have oysters and then come over and have an ice cream. I, I mean, the French would probably lose their shit over a couch potato. <laughs> I'm sure they would. Yeah, I'm sure they would. Oh, my God, that'd be delicious. That's okay. my that's my retirement plan. That sounds like a good one. That sounds like a real good one. You want to play a game? OK, it's time to play a game. Are there rules? No rules. Ready? <laughs> yes. Coffee or tea? Tea. Milk or no milk? Oh, depends. What kind of tea? <laughs> Chai tea, milk, like English breakfast, no milk. Pancakes, waffles. Shit. Pancakes. Bacon, sausage. Bacon. Back bacon, streaky bacon. 
wait, what's the difference? Streaky bacon's like the regular bacon. You regular can... bacon or Canadian bacon? Oh, regular. Taco burrito. Taco. Chicken duck. <sighs> um, I'd say duck. Beef or pork? Oh, that one's hard because they're both so good. <laughs> um, when I get a chance, I mix them. Uh, you know what? I I love a really good steak. Hot dog, hamburger. Shit. Well, if I'm hanging out with Brian Lashane, I'm eating hot dogs, and if I'm not, I'm eating hamburgers. <laughs> Ketchup or mustard? Mustard. Whole grain Dijon. Whole grain. Sashimi nigiri. Uh, sashimi's the one just on rice, right? Sashimi's no rice. Nigiri is rice. Oh, then nigiri. Pasta or noodles? Like noodles, like, like in a like in a ramen kind of noodle situation. Yeah. So there's pasta, which is Italian style noodles, or then there's noodles as a whole, right? There's pasta, and then there's noodles. Noodles could be rice noodles, ramen noodles. I go pasta. <clears throat> Ravioli or dumplings? Oh, the, but dumplings could be so many things. So I'll say ravioli. Meatballs or sausage? Shit. Meat, uh, sausage, sausage. What style of pizza? Oh, I love... Fucking, I love a good New York slice. Just like any pizza street on the street corner. Just give me a fucking slice. Quail or squab? Ooh, quail. A cup or a cone? Oh, I I would say, oh, it depends on where I am. More, more, more times than not a cone. Sugar cone or styrofoam cone, as I like to call them. <laughs> uh, sugar cone. Soft serve or ice cream, like traditional ice cream, gelato. Yeah, ice cream. And it ha it must be made with egg yolks. Chocolate or fruit? Fruit. Favorite fast food? Uh, number one from Whataburger. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. Or, or, if it, or if it's breakfast, you get the honey butter chicken biscuit. Oh my God, you're so funny. Guilty pleasure. Like just in general? Yep. Anything in the world. Whatever you want. Vanderpump rules. <laughs> Favorite candy. Oh my God. Well, I have two. I have hot tamales and Twizzlers. Depends on what I'm feeling. Brown or white sugar? Brown. Oops. I mean, you have to have white, but if I choose like brown, because there's so many different kinds of brown. Maple or honey? That's too hard. Honey. Molasses or no? It, when necessary, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Last meal. Oh my God. Okay. It's, it's a lot of things. Um, if you've ever been to eat at the Bristol Hotel, there's a dish called the macaroni. It's a pasta that's stuffed with artichoke foie gras and truffles, and it has a tr black like truffle sauce and a foie gras foam, and then it's they gratin it with um aged parmesan. I could lick the plate, and that shit gets better every time I go. So that, and uh, my mom's mac and cheese, and the pistachio ice cream from Unglasa Perry. Your favorite cookie? Oh, does it have to be mine? Be whatever you want. Okay, this is really bad. <laughs> you know, at the grocery store, they come in a box of twelve, and they're white with like fake frosting on them. <laughs> but now I make one, so I like mine better, <laughs> and I can pronounce everything that's in it. I think they're called like loft house cookies. It it took me a while to get that one, but I finally got it. And mine's pretty good. Oh so I'll eat, I'll eat my version of a loft house. How's that? Oh my God. That's so funny. Red wine, white wine. Champagne. Dark beer, light beer. 
and eh, Lone Star. <laughs> I don't drink as much anymore. So, you know, I mean, I make simple choices. There you go. Yeah. It. That's it. And that's Rebecca. Hi. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rebecca, if people want to visit you, if they want to order cookies, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, so we have a website, bluffbakebar.com. We are in Houston in the Heights. Uh, we have an Instagram at fluffbakebar. I have an Instagram at sugarfairy. I'm not responsible if you are offended for my snarkiness. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And there you have it. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. It's awesome to have you. And it's so, it's so fun to see how so many different people get to where they are. And, you know, yeah. not, not every road is, uh, is smooth as glass, is it? No, no. This one has definitely had some craziness to it. I wouldn't change. I might change one. No, I wouldn't change any of it because every experience I've had has taught me something to make it better. And I mean, Fluff just celebrated 12 years in March. So there you go. There we go. Congratulations. Thank you.